going to jump back into Solomon. How many of you heard stories about Solomon when you were a child? Some of you. Uh, how many of you, uh, in your childhood understanding of the character of Solomon, understood him to be the hero of the story? And he was a good guy. He had actually some really great things going for him. Um, in, a, in, a, in a moment of creativity, I renamed, or I named this teaching, uh, jumping off of last week. Go ahead and go to the next slide there, Scott. Uh, still going to end poorly. <clears throat> This is a story that starts out really well. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's really a, a story of, of unparalleled success where under the surface things are not what it seems, which is actually a story in the news right now on a couple of different fronts, right? We had Elizabeth Holmes, CEO of Theranos, just sentenced to jail time because her Billion dollar, multi billion dollar company was not what it seemed. You guys tracked with that? There's another story just this week. It was FTX, Sam Bankman Fried. Uh, digital currency exchange, turns out. You realize that he was the second largest political donor in the United States of America last year? And, and the whole thing is collapsing. It's crazy. And that's like, and I, it's hard not to like sort of jest about, but in reality, this, this affects like a lot of people who had investments tied up in this. This one I think you should have seen coming. His last name is Bankman, Bankman Fried. That's literally how it's spelled, Fried. So you should have seen it. That's what our story is. It's a really great story about a really great guy that experienced really great success. It's also a story about a guy who had it all and blew it all despite all of his obvious brilliance. He ignored the most basic and obvious instructions of all. So what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna jump in uh, to 1 Kings uh, I'm going to start in verse 14. This won't be up here, but I'm just going to read through kind of the account of Solomon's accomplishments because this dude had it going on. 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 14. If you have a Bible app or a Bible with you, you can read along with me. Now, the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. Um, if you're a math nerd, pull out your calculator real quick. If you're not a math nerd and you don't want to identify as such, you can also pull out your calculator. You ready for some basic math? A talent is approximately 70 pounds, so put in 70, times 16 ounces, times the current price of gold, which is $1,750 an ounce, times 666. What do you get? about 1.3 billion dollars. Solomon was making bank. And then it says, and besides that, from the traders and the wares of merchants and all the kings of the Arabs and the governors of the country, King Solomon made 200 large shields out of beaten gold using 600 shekels of gold on each large shield, and he made 300 small shields of beaten gold using three minas of gold on each shield, and the king put them in the house of the timber of Lebanon. 
You know you got money left over when you're making stuff out of gold just to decorate your house. Moreover, the king made a large throne out of ivory and overlaid it with fine gold. <laughs> I don't know if you can tell, underneath that gold is, is some more really nice stuff. But I just covered it over. <clears throat> And there were six steps to the throne and a round top to the throne at its back and armrests on each side of the seat and two lions standing beside the armrests. Twelve lions were standing there on the six steps on one side and on the other and nothing like it was made for any other kingdom. Now all of King Solomon's drinking utensils were of gold and all the utensils of the house of the timber of Lebanon were of pure gold. None was of silver. You can't be eaten off that junk. It was not considered as amounting to anything in the days of Solomon, for the king had ships of Tarshish at sea with Hiram's ships. Once every three years, the ships of Tarshish. Just try to say ships of Tarshish several times. You'll understand my pain. Once every three years, the ships from that place would come carrying gold and silver, ivory, monkeys, and peacocks. So King Solomon became greater than all the kings of the earth in wealth and wisdom. Verse 24, and all of the earth was seeking the attention of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. And they were bringing everyone a gift Articles of silver and gold, garments, weapons, balsam oil, horses and mules, and so much year by year. I just imagine like all these like, foreign kings lined up, and then there you are with a mule. <laughs> uh, that's really nice gold throne. I brought you a donkey. Now Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen, and he had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, and he stationed them in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem, meaning he had amassed such a large army of horses and chariots, he actually had to build essentially army bases to house this army. And the king made silver as common as stones in Jerusalem. He made cedars as plentiful as sycamore trees that are in the lowland. Translated, he made oak trees as common as alders. Also, Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Kew. And the king's merchants acquired them from Kew for a price. A chariot was imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. And by the same means, they exported them all to the kings of the Hittites and to the kings of the Arameans. And then jumping to chapter 11, verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. I don't know if you've ever met a Hittite woman, but Solomon loved them. <laughs> he had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. 
That's a lot. Now, Solomon was very successful. Um, before we make a judgment regarding his success, um, I think it would be wise to consider if the Lord had left any specific instructions for a king. You know, there's commandments. We know that in the scriptures. Well, it turns out about four, approximately 400 years earlier, God not only predicted that the people of Israel would one day want a king, in other words, they would want a political structure that, that was similar to the nations around them, not only did he predict that, predict that that would happen, but in preparation for that eventuality, he, he laid out some specific instructions for that future king 400 years prior. Do you remember what was happening 400 years ago from now? Jamestown? I mean, that's a long time ago, right? That was before America, as we know it, was founded as a nation. You want to hear what he said? It's pretty great. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. When you enter the land which the Lord your God has given you. So this is even before they were in the promised land. And you take possession of it, and you live in it, and you say... I will appoint a king over me like all the nations that are around me. But you remember, if you've been here tracking with the story, that's exactly what happened. They went to Samuel and they said, we want a king. That will solve our problems. I will appoint a king over me like all the nations who are around me. Then you shall in fact appoint a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your countrymen, and you shall appoint as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves, anyone who is not your countryman. Okay, so far so good. Solomon is an Israelite. In any case, he is not to acquire many horses. Oh, shoot. Um, nor shall he make the people go to Egypt to get horses. Oh, no. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. Okay, so we're, you know, we're 50% right now. We're doing okay. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself. I mean, many is kind of a vague word, right? For some people, like 700 feels like many. It depends on your background, really. So that his heart does not turn away nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. How are we doing? Wait, is Solomon the good guy? God's warning to the future king of Israel was intended to address the predictable corrupting and compounding human desire for power and control, for wealth and possessions, and for sensuality and pleasure. The predictable desire 
God's not surprised by this. The corrupting desire, it, it, our desire for those things, ruins us. And the compounding desire, meaning that the more that we give in to those desires, guess what? Our appetites never actually say, that's enough, you should be fine. What happens? The more that you give in to corrupting appetites, the greater they grow. Do you think Solomon had enough women at, you know, 500 wives? Guess who didn't think so? Solomon. You know, I could probably use about 200 more. And then I will be happy. Why did God put this in his law hundreds of years in advance? Because God knows what is in the heart of man, of humankind, his creation. He knows the propensity of our hearts. God knows us, knows our desires. And I don't mean like the internet knows your desires. Do you guys have that happening yet where the same ad pops up on every website because you happen to do a little bit of Christmas shopping? Social media is supposed to know what I, what I like and then, you know, customize whatever they show me accordingly. I had a spat, I think this was last year for like two months, of ads from several different places of, of middle-aged, Middle Eastern men doing the splits and offering to train me how to do the splits. I don't think Facebook knows me as well as they think they do. Or maybe I don't know me as well as I think I do. Actually, I would like to be able to do the splits. God knows our, our hearts. He knows our propensity. 1 John 2.16 for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. That's not from the Father. It's from the world. And there's something about the effect of sin that, that, that makes us sort of grow accustomed to it. Alexander Pope writes, vice is a monster so frightful mean as to be hated needs but to be seen. Yet seen too oft and familiar with her face, we first endure, then pity, and then embrace. So where do things go wrong for Solomon? How did someone so wise, so famously wise, fall so flat on his face? I mean, let's be honest. That's a I would say, I would say that there's some things confusing about the will of God, but that list of instructions for the future king is pretty straightforward. Fair enough? Well, there's another part of the Deuteronomy passage. He continues on. Chapter 17, verse 18, now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, talking about that future king, that he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll 
in the presence of the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, so that he will learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully following all of the words of this law and these statutes, so that his heart will not be haughty towards his countrymen, and that he will not turn away from the commandment to the right or to the left, so that he and his sons may live long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. Now, spoiler alert, the story ends poorly. Matt's going to unpack that next week. The kingdom is going to collapse. What was the final instruction? That, that king, with, with the priests present to make sure that nothing was missed, would by hand write out his own personal copy of the commands of God. You know how rare a copy of the commands of God would have been during this time? Very rare. You wouldn't have had one. You could not have afforded to have one. The king was not only to handwrite in his own penmanship, which is a learning mechanism, his own copy, but he was then to review his copy of the law on a daily basis. Two things I want to tell you about the story, and one of them your brain already is jumping to, and it seems to be the obvious point. But just like there's stuff going on in Saul's success that maybe doesn't, doesn't uh, hit the observer right away, there's more to the story. God's instructions are not vague, they're not hard to understand, and there's an obvious truth, I think, here. I want to address briefly, but there's a larger and somewhat hidden truth that is very important for us today. So here's the first one, the obvious one. We complicate the issue of obedience to explain our disobedience. God says a lot of things. They're very straightforward. Aaron, I want you to, in fact, the, the scripture says, Aaron, I want you to sacrificially lay down your life and serve your wife. And I say, <laughs> no, I know, that's, I, know that's a, I know that's a thing. But you've met her, right? Now, so are, some of you are just horrified by that statement. I'm, I'm playing a role right now. I'm not actually talking about Jenny, okay? <laughs> My wife is perfect and easy to love at all times. That's the, that's the official record. No, he says, I want you to lay your life down for your family. And we go, I mean, I would. I could. And I, yeah, I should. Also, um, this isn't really doing it for me. It's not really making me happy. So maybe we could negotiate that. God says, do not store up treasure on earth, but in heaven. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, also, a little. God says, religion is this. Pure and undefiled religion is this. Care for the orphan and the widow, which I totally would. And I could, and I probably should. But it's complicated. Go into the, all, all the world and make disciples. Why do you think it is that, that Solomon didn't tend to these like very very straightforward instructions. I think the explanation 
for why he ignored these is hidden in that little narrative that we just read. Verse 24, and all of the earth was seeking the attention of Solomon to hear his wisdom. My excuse is much more pathetic than that. I had like three appointments, you know. But it's the same. Why don't I, why don't I pour over the scriptures in order to understand the will of God? Because I'm a busy guy. I got a church to run. I don't have time to be reading the Bible every day. I got stuff to do. I got people that want to talk to me. I think the, the unfortunate reality is that sometimes we actually find ourselves distancing ourselves from the word of God so that we don't have to deal with the constantly guilty conscience that it provokes in us when we read it. For some of us, the difficulty in consistently engaging with the law of God, the commands of God, the word of God, stems from the realization, I already know what it says, and I already know I'm not doing it. Why do I want to plague myself with a further guilty conscience? This is rarely like a conscious thought process. It's actually a reaction of the heart. I get a bad feeling when I, when I come in proximity to the law of God because I know that it's not really working out on a number of fronts in my own life and I don't like that bad feeling and every time I'm near him, I'm reminded of it. And so I sort of subconsciously keep myself busy and preoccupied so I don't have to deal with that inconsistency. My issue is not self-discipline. My issue is that I prefer to hide from my own disobedience. Of course, I would read the scripture more consistently, but come on, the whole earth is seeking my attention. And the rat race that ensues becomes a never-ceasing and yet blind pursuit of more. More power and control, more wealth and possessions, more pleasure and sensuality. I'm always busy, but I'm never actually coming alive. I'm never actually moving towards the Lord. In fact, the foundations of my life are so feeble that collapse is imminent. Haggai 1, you have sown so much only to harvest little. You eat. There's not enough to be satisfied. You drink. There's not even enough to get drunk. You put on clothing, but there's not enough for anyone to get warm. And the one who earns, earns wages to put in a money bag full of holes. The Lord of armies says this, consider what you're doing. Blindly filling my life with activities to accumulate more of something, and maybe I don't even know what that more is, but that's where all of my energy goes. Because there's a disconnect here. And here is where I would say it would be easy to stop here and settle for sort of the obvious moral of the tale. Well, Solomon should have read his Bible more, and you would have less problems if you would read your Bible more. This observation, although on a technicality, yes. You, if you're not in the scripture, you should be. Yes. 
This is somewhat misleading if you don't understand more broadly the point that all of the law, all of the commands of the Old Covenant are trying to make. They're actually making a point and it's about you. This is laid open in the New Covenant and that is that the commands of God do not make us righteous. The commands of God make you sinners. And not just sinners, but sinners helpless against our own sinfulness. The command of God only serves to reveal my broken internal frame, my wandering heart, the commands of God reveal to me that I am doomed. It's not my busyness that explains my disobedience. It is my, it is my brokenness. It is my fallenness. And it's difficult at times, again, apart from a proper understanding of the gospel, it's difficult to engage with God in a meaningful way while I'm still painfully aware of my own brokenness. Romans 3.20, because by the works of the law, none of mankind will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Galatians 3.24, therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Let me explain what would have happened for Solomon he had followed that final piece of instruction regarding reading the law of God. And this is my second sort of long but final point. You bring yourself to God's word. God's word will bring you to your need and your need will bring you to Jesus Christ. You understand that that's the function of the word of God. And when I don't understand that, I'm constantly disappointed by how I'm revealed to be a sinner while, while, while in the word of God. The word of God, Galatians 3, the word of God was, is intent, or the law of God is intended to be a tutor to show you, you need help. And not just any generic help, you need Christ. That's what the word of God does. And so the very thing that I avoid, which is the exposure of my own brokenness, the word of God is intended to show me. Not as an end, not so that I just am lost and feeling bad about my disobedience, but to show me my need and direct me towards the solution for my need, faith in Christ. Many well-intending believers make it through the first two and are blind to the third and the most critical step. And they say to themselves, why do I keep reading this when it's obviously not fixing my issues? The word of God cannot fix you. The word of God reveals your need, which will bring you to your knees. If you allow that to happen,
you'll step into the sweetest experience on this side of heaven. And that is meeting Jesus in your place of need. And you realize that everything that I can't conjure for myself, he offers me as a gift. God did not give Solomon, um, you guys can, worship team, you guys can go ahead and come up. God did not give Solomon the command to preemptively fix him. He gave Solomon the command to lead Solomon back to him whenever his heart began to wander astray because God already knew that Solomon's heart, despite all of his wisdom, all of his, his success, was prone to wander astray. My favorite example of this principle is the command, do not worry. You realize the scripture says, do not worry. Let's have a moment of confession. Uh, how many of you struggle with anxiety? At some level or another, okay, a lot of you. <clears throat> hey, I, something I wanna tell you this morning, I just want you to hear it in love. Do not worry. How do you feel? Does that command make you feel better? You know that your worry is disobedience. You realize that. It's a direct command. So to worry is to disobey God. Now how do you feel? Oh, you know what? Now that I realize that, I don't worry anymore. The command brings us to the precipice of my own ability to solve my own condition and confronts me with the reality, I don't have it. God, I need you. Which one of those three things trips you up? The need for power and control? There's a lot of different ways to amass chariots. The desire for wealth and possessions. desire for sensuality and pleasure. God already knows. He's given you his word to reveal your need and to lead you back to him, back to the goodness of knowing, loving, and following him. 1 John 5, 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And when properly understood, through the power of the Spirit in us, we discover that his commandments are not burdensome. It's the invitation to life. I cannot stress enough. I want you to hear me solidly on this this morning. If you are not consistently in the word of God, you're in trouble. But that consistency will not produce what you might be led to think it should produce. That consistency in the word of God is what is intended to expose your need and take you back to him. It's not a fixing salve that corrects your issues. It's a pathway to relationship. So if you're not in the word of God consistently, I want to invite you this morning. Make it happen. I know you're bad at it. I know it's hard. 
I know you're tired in the morning and tired at night. Get in the word of God and move heaven or hell to make that happen. We'll change your life. I want to invite you to respond. Uh, we're going to worship together. That's one way you respond. Just open up your heart to the Lord and hear from him through worship. Uh, we'll have a couple people over here to the side. If you want to pray with someone about anything this morning, you can do that. You can give during this time as part of your worship. And you can take communion uh, as, a, as, a, as a way of remembering the sacrifice of Christ, his body and his blood shed for us. So would you guys stand and let's come before the Lord. You know, we live in an age of distraction. You don't have to be diagnosed with ADHD to be just massively distracted all day. You carry around a device that seeks your attention in your pocket, right? Yeah. Don't miss the invitation to meet the living God in his word. It's just one of the ways that we can come to him and yet coming to him every single day is, is part of that invitation. So don't miss it. Make it a part of your daily habit to meet him instead of picking up your phone or going and doing something or filling every moment of your day with something to do, right? Meet him. If you are uh, struggling with food or if you know someone who's struggling with food, might not know where their next meal is coming from, would you come see one of our team members? We would love to help in that, in that area, especially with the holidays. Um, we don't officially end at 1230, so please feel free to stick around, help out our teardown team. Also, we have Women's Chapel tonight, so if you're a woman, sixth grade and higher, please come hang out with us. All right, we'll see you next week. God bless you. Bye.